This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. That 13,000 feet, it's the highest pass on the John Muir Trail. And I still see this picture today of myself standing there with my ice axe in my pack. And that's my image of strength. I was at the peak of my youth and physical fitness. And 28 hours later, I was fragile and near death. Life can change on us at any moment. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. My name's Aaron Miller, I'm a travel writer, and it is an honor to share this story with you today. This is an incredible tale of survival against all odds, but most of all, it's a tale about facing death and learning to live. Are you ready? Let's go. Have you ever had a moment that changed the course of your life forever? For Jean Montrath, that moment came at the top of Mount Whitney 31 years ago during a terrible storm which nearly killed her. Her accident and the years following it inspired her to pen her award-winning memoir, If I Live Until Morning, which you can find on Amazon, at select local bookstores, wherever you get your books. You can also visit jeanmontrath.com And I'm putting the link in the show notes to check it out. It's a hell of a story. But before we set off, I'm going to ask you for a huge favor. If you like this show, help us spread the word so we can keep telling these amazing stories like Jean's. Right now, we're going to give you the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you share the show with your friends. All you need to do is go to refer.fm forward slash armchair explorer. You'll get sent a link. Share that link with your friends and the folks over at refer.fm will do the rest. Every referral counts as one raffle ticket to win that gift card. And the more referrals you get, the more raffle tickets you get, the bigger the chance you will have of winning. And if you get 10 of them, you'll even get an exclusive Armchair Explorer t-shirt that's so exclusive, even I don't have one. That's it. It's super simple. We'll do the draw once a month for the next couple of months so you can keep playing too. That link again is refer.fm armchair explorer. It's in the show notes. Go and take a look now. It's super simple and I appreciate everything you can do to help spread the word. Thank you. Also, remember you can connect with us on social. We want to hear from you. Find us on Instagram at armchair explorer podcast. Sign up for the newsletter at armchair-explorer.com. And if you're feeling particularly generous, become a patron of the show for as little as $3 a month. It really does make a huge difference, so I appreciate anything you can do. But for now, it's time for the adventure. The year is 1982. Jean is in her early 20s, and she's getting ready to set off on what she thought would be the greatest adventure of her life, but what would become one of the most dangerous and harrowing experiences anyone could have. We're about to cross-country ski the John Muir Trail in California. Yeah, so I had wanted to hike the John Muir Trail because there's nothing like hiking. I, I just love exploring landscapes on my feet. You know, that's a wonderful thing. But at the time... 
the circumstances weren't right. And then fast forward, you know, a couple years, and I meet this young man named Ken, and he had just hiked the John Muir Trail. And I was just asking him about the experience, and I mean, I was enthralled just hearing him describe the scenery and what it was like for him. And then for some weird reason, he just stopped the conversation and he looked me right in the eye and he said, quote unquote, but my dream is to ski the John Muir Trail and I need somebody to do it with. And I literally knew that was me. The John Muir Trail spans 211 beautiful miles from its start in Yosemite Valley to its conclusion on top of Mount Whitney, the highest point in the lower 48 states. The hikers who make this trek cover six mountain passes and nearly 40,000 feet of elevation gain before their journey ends. Thousands of people walk it every year. In summer, on foot, it's hard. In winter, on skis, it is extreme. Jean drove to Yosemite Valley, her heart beating with excitement because her adventure, the adventure she'd been waiting and training for, was about to begin. When we got there, there was grass poking up, but there was still snow and the waterfalls, which Yosemite is known for with the granite cliffs that rise 3,000 feet above you. It was just, you know, pouring water from the snowpack and loud, obviously, the rivers were swollen. And it was just stunning. And I remember in Lyle Canyon, which is just south of Tuolumne Meadows, really taking in the utter silence. You know, snow absorbs sound. And so, like to hear coyotes or just to hear the sounds of silence, uh, which actually exist, is really a beautiful experience. Inside, I was also feeling a lot. I was like, wow, I'm finally here. We're like really gonna do this. And I think for all adventurers, there's, you know, this moment you're on the edge of embarking, right? That this is really gonna happen. There's that excitement. And there's a little bit of fear because adventure is, means you're going into unknown and uncertain terrain and unfamiliar and there's risk involved, you know, so all of that comes together. And I was really feeling that, like, can I really do this? But, you know, you don't know unless you try. They'd ski for 20 miles, sometimes more a day, breaking partway for lunch in snowy meadows or sheltering from the wind in the shadow of granite cliffs. At night, They'd fall asleep to the stars and wake at first light to do it all again. You feel a oneness with this natural world around you. Like you're part of the energy of this big picture and all this life that's out there breathing with you, whether it be, you know, the trees or the rivers rushing, the, the kind of the lifeblood of the earth and the animals and the birds. And you just feel like you belong. And of course, we were the only ones out there. We ran into just a few people in this, on this whole trip. And so it was isolated. It was just raw wilderness and it was beautiful. And it was soul nourishing is what I would say. But as they neared the end of their journey and the base of Mount Whitney, that sense of calm and oneness began to fade. And it was replaced by something else, something unsettling and hard to articulate but something impossible to ignore. I just had this feeling, it's like it came up from my gut. I mean, a gut feeling, literally, like, like a rush of air. And my thought bubble was, something terrible is going to happen. And, and I kind of checked in with myself, like, 
well, what is it? Where is this coming from? Is this just random fear or is this really something? And I felt like it was something, but I was also struggling with how to deal with that. I'm a very intuitive person, but Ken, my skiing partner, was not an intuitive person. He was very logical. And I knew in my heart if I said, hey, um, let's pause, we need to talk. Maybe we should not do this trip. We've spent years planning this trip, training for it. Let's just stop because I have a feeling and I knew that would not cut it. And so I kept trying to squash that feeling, you know, and suppress it and ski on. And throughout the day it would bubble up and I push it back down and eventually I just kind of let go of it um, and just kind of hoped for the best. Now, fast forward in time, hindsight is worth a lot. I now know if you get a gut feeling, especially if you're on an adventure in a place where things can go very wrong, you should stop and you should pay attention. We all know that feeling, that inexplicable voice that whispers in the very back of your mind to turn around, to beware, to watch for what's coming around the corner. But it's not logical, it's not rational, so it's easy to dismiss. It's easy to drown that voice. But as Jean was about to find out, ignoring that whisper might be the worst decision of your life. She had arrived at the base of Mount Whitney. We had our skis strapped on to our backpacks and had our ice axes and we had crampons with us and just going up that. And I was, again, so strong. It was really not a big deal. Um, so I was feeling really good about that. And then, of course, we got to the summit. I had never been there before. Very flat on top and broad, expansive summit. And I was feeling very joyous. But I could see there were also... Uh, these misty trailers and clouds building south of us. And then they came out of nowhere. Like, the next moment, they were full-on storm. It was lightning. It was snowing. And, you know, we're in the highest place in the lower 48 states. This is the worst place you can be in a lightning storm. I mean, literally. And so Ken and I were very concerned. I remember looking in his eyes, and he looked at mine, and there was, there was fear. Like, we've got to do something. We've got to do something fast. We talked about our options, and our original plan had been to head south on the mountain along this long ridge called Trail Crest, but with the storm coming in and the vulnerability of being on top, we made the decision, for better or for worse, to go down the North Face. The North Face is a much more dangerous route than the one they had originally planned. It is a series of sharply descending gullies and sudden drops, and in winter, it's covered in ice and snow. It's incredibly difficult, it's technical, and the storm was growing. They were scared, and they should be, because suddenly, disaster struck. Ken goes down first with his ice axe. So we're, I should clarify, we're not skiing. We are mountaineering. Our skis are on our packs. We have our ice axes out, our crampons. And Ken is doing what's called a hanging glissade, where you're literally hanging on the blade of your pick that digs a half an inch into the mountain. All that weight is on that. And then he kicked some steps off the summit into that upper gully because he was below me. And I then came behind him. And in a little ways, he decided to change positions. He was just a few feet um, to the left of me or to the east. And so as he changed positions, I could see him out of the corner of my eye but then he just disappeared. 
Like he flew down the mountain and then I couldn't see him anymore. So a very terrifying moment for a young woman. I'm alone, he's got the map, he's got the rope, he's got a lot of the food, um, you know, in terms of the gear. And I don't know if he's alive, I don't know if he's dead, I am quite terrified. It was probably the most focused moment of my entire life. Well, it was a moment that went on forever <laughs> uh, to get down. It took several hours, but I remember feeling the fear, but also coaching myself. Like my inner voice started speaking to me like, you can do this. You have to do this. You must go slow. You must take your time because if there's one air, I don't know what'll happen to you and you won't be of any use to Ken if he's even alive. And so I, took my sweet time, um, very fearful. I stopped periodically and would yell into the void, you know, Ken, are you there? Are you okay? And you know, there was never any sound back. And so all I could do was continue down. And it was intense, let me tell you, terrifying. Later, she would measure it on a map. Ken had fallen 800 feet off a cliff in a storm on the highest mountain in the lower 48 states. You don't survive that kind of fall. But as she made her way down, her hope fading that she would find him alive, one step at a time, praying that she wouldn't suffer the same fate, she saw something far off in the distance. I got to a point where the mountain wasn't so steep and I could look down and I saw him waving his arms at me. So I knew he was at least alive and I didn't know how injured he was. But he left his pack at the base of those cliffs and came up and around a different route to meet me and help me down. So reuniting was very joyous. You know, I felt like maybe we would be okay then. Somehow, Ken had suffered only minor hairline fractures in his spine and some skin abrasions from his 800-foot fall down the mountain, a fall that would kill most people. It was miraculous. And when he and Jean reunited in a flurry of joy, he actually proposed to her and they got engaged right there on the slopes of Mount Whitney. Jean felt hope daring to bloom in her stomach where that feeling of dread had been lurking for so long before. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. And so as we continued down, the storm had subsided for a while, but then it came back with a vengeance as we were descending. And some of the rocks we wanted to go down were icing up and, it, you know, we oh, we can't go that way. We'll have to go this way. And Eventually, we came down 
to these rocks. We were down climbing. And because Ken had come up from where his pack was, he discovered a new route, right? And he knew that if we could get to this ledge, we could traverse over and bypass those cliffs. And so he down-climbed and said, you know, you stay here, I'll go get the rope that's in the pack, and um, I'll come back and get you. Okay, so then now I make another decision, and that is he's, he's going down, no problem. It was just 20 feet to get down to that ledge. And so I'm thinking, I'm fit, I'm strong, I can do this. But because I didn't consider that I had 35 pounds on my back down climbing, he didn't. I had these skis sticking straight up, which can catch on things. I am five, barely 5'3", five, if that. I weigh less, I can't reach the same holds. So I head down and quickly realized that this was not a good idea. And I couldn't go up and I couldn't go down and I was literally stuck. And I very clearly remember thinking, you know, what am I gonna do? What can I do? And my legs were shaking, my body was shaking. And my last conscious thought was, I said to myself, God, don't let me fall. She stood there clinging to the icy cliff, her strength fading, her arms and knees shaking. She couldn't go up. She couldn't go down. It was that hideous, terrifying moment when you realize there is only one course of action, that nothing can be done, that you are beyond saving. And then... My world went black. It was really weird because I was unconscious, but I heard sound. I heard my body going thump, thump, thump on the rocks. I heard my ice scraping. I could feel me moving through this space, hitting things, but I didn't feel any pain. It was very, very strange. And then I woke up at the end after falling uh, what I later learned to be about 150 to 165 feet, bouncing, of course. And I had broken pretty much everything below my backpack. Clearly, things were very desperate. I was very seriously injured. She had broken her spine in multiple places, shattered her sacrum, fractured her hip, suffered a head injury and a hematoma. But she was alive. Ken dragged her across the snow, agony with every inch, and pitched their tent on a narrow ledge and dragged her inside. As night fell, the storm gusts screamed around them, bucking and bending the walls of their tent. I was laying there, and it is truly twilight. The last light is breaking through the stormy clouds, and I see this golden light on Mount Russell, which is this pointy, beautiful peak. And I'm, I remember wiping the blood off my forehead to see it better. And I do remember thinking, this is a beautiful place to die because I, I should die. I mean, there's no reason for me to be living with these kind of injuries. And, and I was well aware of that. I was peaceful because there was nothing I could really do. It was going to be what it was going to be. Time was now dark, and I was getting ready to go to sleep. I was obviously very exhausted. There was blood everywhere all over the tent. And I remember saying to Ken, I, I'm not sure I'm going to make it through the night. Would you stay up all night and watch my breathing? And he agreed to do that. And then I, you know, said goodnight. I told him I loved him, and I said, we're going to be okay. But she didn't believe it. She closed her eyes, too exhausted to keep them open, knowing it would probably be for the last time. But then something remarkable happened. 
I closed my eyes, and right before I went to sleep, I was very lucid. I was so aware. I was just this amazing, expansive level of consciousness. And I felt what I call in my book, Death. And you'll notice I gave Death a capital D, because to me it was an energetic entity. And I felt it kind of floating above my body, almost like an intimate contact, almost as if it was going to kiss me. And I knew it was death. The raw reality of death was literally in my face. I think what I was feeling with hindsight was my life force leaving my body. And that's when I made this vow to myself, if I live until morning, I will live my greatest dreams. And that thought was like an anchor. It pulled her spirit back from the brink of death, from that entity hovering over her like a lover, waiting for a kiss. If I live until morning, I will live my greatest dreams. And for Jean, her greatest dream was to see the Himalayas, to hike among the greatest mountain range on earth. And that vow, that promise she made to herself on the brink of death, it worked. I woke up the next morning and I was surprised. It was like, wow, I, you know, this is actually happening. I'm alive. I'm, I'm here on the, on the face of Mount Whitney. And then another thought bubble arose that I really listened to. It was a, a mantra and it just came. It was, I'm going to live. I'm going to live. I'm going to live. I said that for many days laying on the mountain. I didn't say it out loud because I didn't want to alarm my skiing partner, but I just repeated it literally like a mantra over and over. If I wasn't sleeping or talking to Ken, that's what was going on in my mind. And I, again, it was an intention thing. Like, if I say this, I might believe it. It might actually happen. Death had faded and a glimmer of hope had replaced it, but it was still close by. It was 1982. There were no cell phones or GPS. They were a week ahead of their itinerary, so no one would be concerned over their absence for days. And they were alone on the mountain. So they made the difficult decision to attempt to hike out themselves. So we plotted our way out. We talked about, do we go out together? Does one person stay? You know, all those life decisions you make in a survival situation. And in the end, we decided we needed to stay together. We needed to have all of our gear with us and hope for the best, even though it would take longer. So that was the right decision for sure. And so when the storm finally cleared and we set out to make it over the Whitney Russell Coal, I'm carrying 35 pounds on a broken spine in multiple places. My sacrum was in three pieces, and I had gangrene in my left buttock because I had a massive hematoma. I had a head injury, I had nerve damage. I mean, I was a mess, and I lost a lot of blood. When I got to the hospital, I needed five pints of blood products. So <laughs> I'm in severe medical shock. But at any rate, I would just put one foot in front of the other as we went out and it was agonizing. I didn't have my skis. I sometimes sank through hip deep snow. I was terrified that my bones would shift and paralyze me. And I was aware I might not make it, but I knew that I was going to try. And if I died, I was going to die trying. And to be honest, there were times I literally, I collapsed in the snow, I cried. And when I thought I couldn't go another step, 
I would just think of my dreams and my vow again. And it was like, I want to see the Himalayas. That's what's keeping me going. And I would imagine the Himalayas and I'd pull that next foot out and, you know, sink up to my thighs again and just keep going. And so I believe the power of having a dream um, because that's what keeps us going in life. That vow kept her going. If I live until morning, I will live my greatest dreams. And somehow, miraculously, carrying a bag that weighed a third of her body weight on a broken spine and bleeding back, she began to hike. And as if that wasn't bad enough, at one point, they came to a sheer rock face and had to rappel down. Jean writes in her book, I took a deep breath, closed my eyes for a moment to compose myself and stepped over the precipice. Hanging in space with a rope around my broken pelvis was torturous. Once she was down, Ken sent their packs after her on the rope and finally lowered himself down the rock face, asking her to guide his feet to safety. She continues, Soon the heels of his boots were cradled in my hands. I felt his body weight thrust down through my spine like a plunger, pushing the pain from my head down to my toes. It hurt like hell. My eyes nearly bulged out from their sockets as I tried to maintain my composure. And like that, slowly, painfully in agony, step by step on a broken back, they made their way down that mountain until the slope gradually leveled and she dared to dream for the first time that she might actually make it. I remember the last mile or mile and a half, I was walking down the trail you would have thought I was a staggering drunk uh, because I was ready to faint. I was so feeble. And I did occasionally just collapse onto the ground and have to get back up. Again, thinking of the Himalayas. Oh, get back up and keep going. And the last, I don't know, mile or half a mile, Ken actually carried me. He ran ahead. He dropped his pack. He came back, put my pack on his back and carried me down the trail. And when he laid me in the parking lot, that was the first time I, I thought, yeah, I, I think I might just pull this off. And it was very powerful. I cried. That was the first time I cried in five days of, you know, from my fall to getting out because I, I could let myself, you know, I couldn't let myself feel that when I was trying to stay alive. I had to just put one foot in front of the other, one mantra in front of the other, one intention in front of the other and just keep going. And when that space opened up, you're going to make it. I let all that emotion out. Ken flagged down a car and they immediately took Jean to the hospital. She was saved. She had survived until the morning. But that's not the end of this story. Over many years, Jean worked tremendously hard to heal her body and recover from the traumatic events that had happened to her. And through it all, she kept that laser-focused beam shining on her ultimate goal, that vow she had made of seeing the Himalayas, until finally one day, that dream, came true. There were kind of different moments of powerful experiences, of course. Um, the first one that really grabbed me was I was, we were flying into Kathmandu and everybody leaped up in the plane and all ran to one side of the plane because everybody's in utter awe of the Himalayas just stretching out for hundreds of miles, you know, mountains that are twice the size of what you have in Colorado, dripping with glaciers. I mean, it's pretty amazing. And so, I was awed by that, and then as everybody settled down for our descent and we're flying in over these green terrace fields, and this voice came up that said, oh, I'm home, 
And then I was like, what? Where did that come from? You've never been here before. But karmically, um, I'm very at home in Nepal. There's no other place on earth. And I, I've seen a lot of places, particularly in Asia, and that just resonates with me. And so that was great. And of course, when we got to, um, we our first trek was in the Everest region. And when we got to the Tengboche Monastery, there was, there was magic there. The spiritual energy just spoke to me. But the single most powerful moment was when I stood on Kalapatar, as thousands of tourists do every single year, the climb where you get the great view of Mount Everest. And I was crying, just tears of joy. And I stepped away from the group of people there and the friend I was traveling with because I needed to be alone. It was kind of a party for them. For me, it was a personal party in a sense of I was celebrating. This was the moment I had lived for. This is the moment that got, you know, I was looking forward to that would get me out alive. And it was a true celebration to, you know, like, I'm alive. I made it. I'm here under my own power. It's not possible with my injuries that I would walk again, let alone, you know, get here and be alive. And and I felt deeply alive in in a way I can hardly describe uh, vibrant. She had followed her mantra down the mountain and up the Himalayas. But even as she gazed upon Mount Everest and felt that surge and celebration of life, that she was alive, that she had made it, she knew that other adventures, other paths, other mountains awaited her. A new journey had begun, a journey inspired by tragedy, but one that would change her life forever. Each time I went back to Nepal, The culture and the people and Buddhist philosophy started speaking to me. So I would come back hungry to know more and I would read about it. And of course, the more my life fell apart, which it has quite a bit off and on because of all these injuries, the more I sought answers. And that's where I looked for my answers because I I saw people over there dealing with such incredible life hardships, the kind we can't even fathom, you know, in our beautiful lives here in North America. And got my attention. Like, well, there's something to it. Why are they managing with all this so peacefully? It just started to resonate with me, and I wanted to learn more. And the more I learned, the more sense it made to me. And so I did embark on a spiritual path. Then I grew up Catholic, and so all of a sudden I'm questioning all of my own values. And I had to really struggle with that. But that was good for me. look at things differently and find my own path, if you will. In doing so, I was learning more about myself and more about Tibetan Buddhism. And really, the essence of that is to work with your mind. I mean, that's what Buddhism really is. It's working with your mind and it's working with your heart. And so I was deepening that by seeking out lamas that would give me teachings on how to do that. And I didn't expect to really go down this journey, but that's how my life unfolded. It's like the place worked its magic on me. You know, it had something it wanted me to grab and, and learn from, and I, and I did. But even though this new spiritual journey helped her alleviate some of her suffering, a part of her journey remained incomplete. Decades after her fall, something was still lodged deep inside her, a granule of anger, resentment, and pain that refused to leave. She knew she had to do something about it, but it wouldn't be easy. 
When I left Mount Whitney, you know, I put that 35 pounds on my broken back and pelvis. I didn't look back. I, I did not want to see that mountain again. It was my enemy, right? Okay. It had changed my life, cursed my life, you know, all of that. So I was just going to put one foot in front of the other and I was leaving. But fast forward many, many years, actually 31 years after my accident, I was having a lot of chronic pain, a lot of emotional pain that goes with physical pain. And I was desperate to heal because I had more adventures and dreams, you know, and if you don't have good health, you can't fully do those adventures, at least not in a sustained way. And so I was so determined to heal on every level. In the course of so many decades of trauma and PTSD, literally from chronic pain and whatnot, I was always wanting answers, you know, why did this happen to me? And I started to get curious about what had happened. And I decided I want to find my skis, my beloved cross-country skis. They were red and gray, uh, Fisher skis. And I, I wanted those back. They, you know, they were part of me, right? And I got more and more curious, like, where did I fall? Where do you think my skis are? And so I thought, you know, let's go back and look. And I realized I was at a point in my own inner journey that I needed to merge this inner journey with this outer journey. You know, I learned you sometimes have to go backwards to go forwards. And I'm utterly fearful of what I might find or how I'm going to react because I'm facing my enemy. This is like a war for me. You know, my, my battle zone is, is going to happen. And so when we got to the Whitney Russell call, my friend Paul and Jonathan were with me. And I said, no, 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 I'm taking over at this point. I'm leading. And I take them right to where Ken and I had bivouacked, which I called Death's Campsite. And I'm looking up at these cliffs where I had fallen and how big they are. And I bawled. I mean, I bawled my heart out. I screamed because I was letting out all of this 31 years of stuff in me. And a lot of it was self-hatred, to be honest, because I made a poor choice. And was still paying, and I still am paying the price for that. And it was cathartic. And we're looking for my skis, and we, of course, didn't find my skis. They're still, they're buried on the mountain, which perhaps is where they belong. But we found Ken's broken ski not far away. We found the heel of my ski boot in a pile of rocks, which is not possible, but we did. What that allowed me to do was I connected the present and the power of this place to the power within myself and my 22-year-old self. And I realized standing there that I hadn't forgiven myself. And I realized I had to make peace with that. So I, I made peace with Whitney by going back and I could make peace. And it was a great experience. I am so glad I went back. I, I released a lot. I learned a lot about myself, about the whole trauma of it. And so it was a good processing. Yeah, it was powerful. In that moment of screaming and bawling at the mountain, of letting out 31 years of hurt and trauma, she made peace with what had happened and peace with herself. She forgave herself. The two strands of her life came together. The adventure which had nearly killed her and which she carried with her every day in the chronic pain she suffered and continues to suffer. 
and the life path that it inspired. She would not be the person she was if she hadn't had to face death, that dark entity hovering above her in the tent. She would not have discovered her spirit. She would not have wept at the sunset over Everest or discovered the beauty of the beliefs and culture that have shaped her life. And in that moment, when those two rivers converged and became one, she became whole too. Her vow had been answered. She had lived until the morning and she had lived her greatest dream. Maybe others will see their own dreams and challenges through this story, but if I can help one person realize their dreams or one person to deal with whatever they are trying to run from, then, then I've taken my tragedy and made it into something better for somebody else. And that's what you should do. You shouldn't be a victim and be self-pity forever. I mean, we do have those pity parties for ourselves, but that's not constructive. We need to move past that and use experiences to better the world, to better ourselves. I'm amazed by the inner strength we all have, and that was something I really wanted to convey in my book, is, you know, kind of two things. I wanted to inspire people to live their life to the fullest. Go after your dreams. I mean, do it smart, right? Because you want a lifetime of adventures, not one good one and then it's over because you did too much but also you know the human condition is we all have our suffering and our our own Mount Whitney's if you will okay and I just feel like I wanted to inspire everybody to look inward to heal their stuff and they can you know that we all have adversity and if I can do it everyone can do it and so I wanted to give people courage to face those inner demons and outer demons and become the best they could, you know, through whatever it takes to, to heal themselves. And I would encourage your listeners, if I can throw this out, take the time to think about if you're literally on the verge of death and you get one vow you can make to yourself, your self-made promise, fill that in. If I were to live until morning, I would. And how would you do that? Because for me, that very moment defined the rest of my life. And here, it's 40 years later now, and that is still with me. I am driven to lead a life of fulfilling my dreams and to live life well. And that, in a sense, is a gift. Thank you, Jean. Thank you so much for sharing your story. There is so much more to this, too, than we could fit in one episode. So I really encourage you to go out and find her book. It's inspiring. It's really well written. And as you know from listening to this, it's an incredible story. It's called If I Live Until Morning, and you can find it on Amazon or wherever you get your books or head over to jeanmontrath.com. And Jean also encourages very generously anyone who is interested in learning more about her experiences, whether that's with Tibetan Buddhism, meditation, or just the trauma work that she's had to do to get through it and can help you too, to email her at bluevadrasky at gmail.com. That's the word blue, B-L-U-E, V-A-J-R-A, sky at gmail.com. I'll also include this information in the show notes. Remember also, if you were inspired by this story and you think it might inspire someone else, please share it. You'll be entered to win prizes for each person that you refer. All you need to do is go to refer.fm forward slash armchair explorer, enter your email, they'll send you a link, share that with your friends and you can win a hundred bucks. It's as simple as that. Thank you so much for helping to spread the word. 
That's all for today. Thank you also for listening and for being a part of this community. It's an honor to bring you these incredible stories. So until next time, keep following your dreams, keep climbing those mountains, keep putting one foot in front of the other, no matter what obstacle life puts in front of you. And remember, the more that you look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who you are. Dare to be truly alive.